Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. segment here. It's International Beer Day. We've been talking a bit about that, and the president of Winnipeg's Torque Brewing joins us, John Heim. John, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Hal. This is a big day for you, or, or were you surprised when you got the call from producer Cam there about coming on today? Were you aware that today is International Beer Day? Of course. You know, when you're in the <laughs> brewing business, so every day is beer day, but just today it has sure. the word international in front of it. Yeah. Um, we've got quite the beer industry here now don't we it's fantastic we've got our four-year birthday this month when we got into the business we were the fourth brewery in manitoba and i think we're about at 16 or 17 local breweries now and is it because it's easier to sort of brew your own i mean you guys aren't you know you're i guess you'd be a craft brewer eh? are you still considered a craft brewer or are you too big for that john oh we're not big enough yet you know there's there's different definitions of what craft means um, you know, for local, uh, people seem to um, understand that, you know, there's businesses in Manitoba and there's employees that are working in Manitoba in the beer industry. So we just make great beer for folks that love beer. And I think that goes the same for all the local brewers. Yeah. Do we see more people brewing beer, you know, smaller than you and at your level and obviously way beyond all the big names that people are aware of? Are we seeing more people brewing their own beer, coming up with their own beers because it's easier? Or why have we seen this uh, uh, growth? I think that, uh, you know, the accessibility to equipment and some of the new beer styles really get people intrigued. They start with some equipment in their garage, then they get a little bit bigger, then they bring some friends over and it becomes a bit more of a social occasion. And down the road, they get to enjoy some of the beer they made. Now, and they've also got lots of great choices at their local beer vendor and liquor mart now to, to pick up styles and maybe experiment a little on their own. Mm-hmm. Has it been challenging, the pandemic, COVID-19, for you over at Torque and the other brewers in town? You know what, I think uh, we closed our taproom on March 17th, like a lot of other restaurants. We were hit almost immediately with all of our um, on-premise or keg sales customers closing up. We offered home delivery, as I think most other local brewers did. And I just got some numbers from uh, MBLL this morning that over the April, May, June time frame, uh, this year over last year, local beer sales are up 25%. And beer sales overall in Manitoba for the same time frame are up just over 5%. So, you know, we, we offer a product that is, you know, typically under $5. It's easy to find some discretionary income for it. So we all sort of pivoted, and I think we're all coming out of the other side of it now as our tap rooms are open and, and provincial guidelines are being a little bit restricted, but we still all, all are uh, adhering to social distancing and sanitizing protocol at, at, at everyone's tap rooms. Well, good for you. Congratulations. That's a, that's a nice number considering we, you know, seem to be rising in numbers again uh, around COVID-19. Um, I guess some of that has to be because people were spending more time at home, and so a beer or two even during the day was uh, not a big deal. So I guess maybe that's why your numbers are up. Yeah, you know what? I think that you know, folks were you kind of blurred the line between work and home, and uh, cocktail hour maybe became a little bit earlier uh, during the day during the pandemic, and you know, it, it's just sort of translated into. Uh, 
you know, overall beer sales in the province going up marginally. Well, not marginally, 25% is quite significant. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so if somebody's listening to us now and they go, yeah, you know what, it's International Beer Day, I'm going to celebrate by having a beer or two, what would you suggest from the Torque lineup? Well, in the tap room, we brew some fun small batch uh, um, selections that we brew like 150 liters at a time. Today in the tap room, we have a uh, cherry wheat beer. We have a cucumber saison. We have a sour IPA, which is kind of like a, an, an interesting combination. And I think one that people are going to come in for, we have a peanut butter and graham cracker porter. So that is another interesting sort of flavor profile that you can only get in the tap room. And all the local brewers have got, you know, taproom only selections so i encourage on international beer day that if you've got nothing to do on on this friday night head out to your local uh brewer and enjoy some of the selections they've got in their taproom excellent who comes up with these uh, creative combos these flavor ideas um people beyond me um i learned a long time ago that we you need to hire people a lot smarter than you to be successful and the guys in the back um it never ceases to amaze me the, the the profiles they come up with a lot of it has to do with like trends but some of it is just sort of taking an existing style and and putting their own sort of um uh bent on on a traditional style you know the saison is a style that exists and we've just added cucumber to it to give it a bit more of a fresh flavor to it excellent hey john thanks a lot for this all the best to uh, you at torque brewing and, and all the local brewers thank you awesome thanks for having me Hal. I said the other day that, uh, you know, when we had the 18 new cases on Saturday, we shouldn't have to wait until Tuesday after the long weekend to find out more details. And uh, I'm not saying they heard me, but I think they heard Manitobans and Winnipeggers in general, and they're doing a better job now of getting the information out there. So 18 on Saturday, 30 new cases yesterday, 17 today, 132 active cases now and a few dozen of those cases, a cluster in Brandon. Joining us now to talk about these new developments, uh, Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, Assistant Prof and Canadian Research Chair, Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the U of M. Dr. Jason, good afternoon. Thanks for having me on, Hal. Yeah, thank you for doing this. Appreciate you coming on uh, here, uh, you know, basically within an hour of getting the news of 17 new cases today. Um, when 30 uh, was announced yesterday, I, 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 it was unsettling for me. And I understand, you know, a lot of these cases aren't in Winnipeg. But this all started with one case on the other side of the world, right? So it, I'm right to be somewhat concerned, aren't I? Yeah, and, and I think that's the thing for all of us to understand is that, you know, feeling disconcerted or, or concerned when we see these new cases, especially when we're going from, you know, a couple every few days to suddenly, you know, 18 or 30, um, it's actually healthy for us to feel that way. I think that it reminds us that we actually are still concerned about this and, and we still are in the right, right frame of mind. But it, it certainly is a, a, an unsettling development, isn't it? It is. Uh, it is. And I want to get to masks. Walmart Canada has announced masks will be mandatory starting next week. But let's talk about this cluster in the Brandon area. A lot of the questions Dr. Rusin took were, uh, from reporters were about this cluster. Um, 34 cases, active cases in the cluster, maybe as high as 40. Uh, we know eight are at Maple Leaf, the pork processing plant in Brandon, one at Tim Hortons. Um, now, while we keep an eye on the numbers, Dr. Rusin didn't sound, even though I think reporters sounded more concerned about this cluster than Dr. Rusin, because Dr. Rusin says these eight people at Maple Leaf and the one at Tim Hortons, 
uh, all have it, but they didn't get it at the plant. They so he he's saying it's not as big a worry. Am I getting that right? Yeah, I mean, I think his perspective is that we're not seeing it in one enclosed facility where you're basically now having people that are you know potentially in close proximity, and you have a greater chance or opportunity for transmission amongst those different people. Of course, there's the other aspect of saying, well, but that also indicates that that there is some virus in the community. And now we have to figure out how much these people may have been in contact with with others in in the environment in around Brandon. So, you know, to me, um, I think I'm a bit disconcerted either way. But I think the moment of solace is the fact that we are at a point in time where we know that testing has increased. We know that contact tracing has increased. They pick these cases up quickly, and they're obviously focusing and going through, you know, with, with a fine-tooth comb, every possible contact that these people have had. So I think that, you know, that we can rest assured that at the very least that people are focusing their efforts right now to try and ensure that they can try and curb transmission uh, in Brandon. Help me understand this uh, five-day positivity rate. It's now at 1.1%. That's the new number today. Now, I've read differing opinions on this number, how important it is and what it means. Um, some of what I've read says that's not a very good number, 1.1%. Explain, am I on the right track with that, or or is it even something we should be concerned about? Because it's kind of a late ad, right? It was never really discussed before, and now it's part of everyday's numbers. Yeah, and I think what we're, what we're seeing now is it's more of harmonization with what other places are, are doing across the globe to, to try and assess how many people are truly positive within the community or what percentage out of all the cases that are being tested. So what they're doing is essentially out of all the cases that are tested in a, in a given day and then over a five-day period, they're looking at the number of total positives within the total number of tests that were performed. So what it starts to give you an indication of is whether or not the percentage of positives are increasing or decreasing within, within your population of, of testing. So if it starts to increase, then you basically increase the number of tests to try and get a better indication of whether or not that's holding true within the broader community. And it starts to give us some indication of, you know, what, what the trend is, is are we seeing that maybe that there is starting to be some, you know, some semblance of sustained transmission. The WHO had said that anything below or anything above 5% was when likely people should be shifting to, to lockdowns and shutdowns. So we're, we're well below that percentage, but we are seeing that it's, you know, it's trickling upwards. It was 0.9%. Now it's 1.1%. So I think the, the real focus is going to be the next couple of, of iterations of this. Are we seeing that it is still continuing to increase or do we get to a plateau and maybe a decrease? And that will start to give us uh, you know, some idea of how we are dealing with it as, as a community. Starting next week, uh, masks are mandatory at Walmart uh, stores in Canada. Is it time for us to start wearing uh, a mask or uh, is it still okay for some people to not do that? Have we reached that point yet? Well, th- this is such a great question, right? So it, it, ultimately in Canada, what makes it difficult is that we, you know, we're so disparately separated as far as our population. So Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, we know make up the bulk of our, of our population. Manitoba, Saskatchewan, we, you know, with maritimes, we have, we have a far lower population. So I think in certain centers um, where you can't keep physically or socially distanced, yes, ma- there's unequivocally no question that the masks uh, you know, need to be implemented, and we're starting to see mandates. 
in Manitoba, you know, I think we're still seeing a lot of people sit on the fence. And we know that we were able to curb transmission without masks in the past, with just having people distanced and, uh, you know, and, and going through undergoing proper hygiene. But we also know now things have gotten, you know, we've all gotten a little bit sloppier with that because it, it seems like we're somewhat back to normal. Um, and I think that's where, you know, I, I've started to, you know, wear a mask a lot more. I'm currently here in Saskatoon, um, but we're, we're wearing masks fairly regularly um, whenever we're, we're out in the community now, but just for the fact that, A, we, we need to demonstrate as a family that we're taking this seriously, but B, we also know that by the time that a positive test is indicated, you know, that, that is basically a lagging indicator for where the virus is in, in the community. And we are seeing so many other communities hopping on board with masks and the importance of masks. I think we, we have to kind of revisit this a little bit and, and think what, what is best for us and what can we do as individuals to help curb transmission. Are you glad to see the province uh, uh, being available to comment on some of these numbers as opposed to like on the long weekend waiting three days before we got details on that 18 cases in one day? I think it's so important, right? So when we're at a time when cases are really low, uh, you know, obviously, you know, people are, are kind of in the mindset of saying, okay, well, you know, we, we've heard enough about COVID for a while, but all it takes is is basically one spark to start that fire again. So I, I like the idea of being very responsive back to the public and providing information because ultimately what we don't want are people feeling left out in the dark on what is actually happening. And I think they need that reassurance um, from, from our public health officials, even for me as a virologist. I mean, I, I you know, looking daily to see what, what our public health officials are, are providing in terms of information. The eight cases at Maple Leaf, final question here for you, Dr. Jason. The eight cases at, at Maple Leaf, uh, obviously the province is keeping a close eye on that. It doesn't sound like Dr. Rusin thinks that, uh, you know, any more action is needed. But we've seen what's happened at these meat processing plants in other provinces. Things can get out of control quickly. Uh, how worried should we be about that? The union there is very worried. Wab Canoe, the opposition leader in the province, backing the union, saying that the plant should be shut down for a few days to at least wait for some other case results to come in. What do you think? Oh, <laughs> well, I'm happy that I'm not in the uh, the, the pay grade that makes me uh, have to make these decisions. No kidding, so, eh? Um, yeah, these I, are you know, these are tough to see. These are tough decisions, right? It's, and and, it, and it, let's be fair, it's people's livelihoods, right? I mean, that's, you know, those, those are days that, that people aren't going to be able to be doing their jobs. And, and it, it, it adds a lot of frustration and, and obviously a lot of uh, inconsistency for people. But I, I think we need to know. And I think, you know, ultimately, uh, again, I'll, I'll acquiesce back to public health and, and say if they, if they feel that they're all okay and in a good position, um, they're doing this because they are experts in this area. Um, but obviously, they're, they're focusing on it. And I think any move... Uh, where, where they suddenly move to, to have people away from the plan indicates that that there might be a bigger concern, but but it doesn't seem that we're at that point yet. Jason, I, I can't tell you how lucky we are to have access to somebody like you. You you really are doing a great service to our listeners, and as you know, that's a lot of Winnipeggers and a lot of Manitobans. So I really appreciate your time. Hell, I really appreciate the, the compliments. Thank you very much. We're going to talk a a bit about COVID-19 here today, uh, but we're going to venture away from from that subject a bit here, too. Um, Let's get on to it. Um, Our first subject here, uh, the headline is, Why People Morally Object to Experiments. Tell me about this one. Well, this is, uh, I thought this was pretty interesting because 
um, people just seem to ex- to reject or feel like it's objectionable to engage in an experiment around, at least around human beings, even when it seems perfectly rational uh, or logical to do so and there's no you know harm. So they gave an example. They said, you know, let's pretend that there's a doctor and the doctor does better when he has a list of things to go through in order, let's say, to give an IV. And, he, and you know, like patients do better when he has this checklist to make sure that he doesn't make any mistakes. He or she doesn't make any mistakes. So we, we have this problem with doctors. We want to give the doctors a checklist. What do we do? We have two policies. One hospital tries putting posters up in all of the, um, in all the patient rooms, all the examination rooms, so then the doctor can just kind of look up and see what to do or see the checklist. Hospital 2 tries putting it under their name tag. So all they have to do is flip up their name tag and they can see the list. Hospital 3 says we're going to do half of our doctors, you know, having posters on the wall and half of our doctors having the badges and we're going to see which one works best. Now, what they did was they asked people which one, how objectionable they found each one. And they didn't find 90%, basically 90% found, you know, the, the poster on the wall, the badge, basically they didn't care. They thought They thought that was were good policies. However, when they actually asked the people, you know, what do you think about creating this experiment where we have half of the hospital doing the posters, half of the hospital doing the name tag, it was, it was dramatically different. Like over 30% of mm. people said that this was objectionable, that you shouldn't do this. Um, so there, it went from like 10% objecting to like 30%, close to 40% objecting to this kind of idea of doing a randomized experiment to see which policy is better, even though both policies were fine. Uh, they didn't. People really didn't right. care about those policies on their own. So it's just interesting how just introducing the idea that it's an experiment makes people feel squeamish. They don't like the idea. And uh, and do we know of, why? Do we we do, do we know why people feel that way about about being, I guess, essentially sort of guinea pigs? I think you just nailed it right there where it seems to be, and they don't have like evidence for this in the research, but they, it seems to be that research kind of objectifies people. And there's this idea that if you're experimenting with people in live situations, you're not giving them the best care possible. In other words, don't experiment, don't do the wall poster, don't do the name tag poster, pick the one you think is going to work better and just do that one for everybody. Even if the people really don't know which one's better. There's this idea like you should just pick the one that you think is better and just do that one rather than experimenting on a human life because you're going to give somebody kind of an infection or it's, it's going to cause some harm. And I think there's also a history of people kind of, you know, and that's what's known is that there's this history of people being harmed by experiments. And, yep. um, and in fact, when anybody participates in experiments around human beings, there's so much talk about risk. I think that also gives people this idea that they're dangerous. Because there's so many ethics now around it when people try to participate or want to participate, they're paid. There's all this talk about, you know, minimizing the risks. And I think so all these things have given people, you know, the misuse of experiments, the idea that you don't, you're not doing the best possible choice. And this idea that even when you're trying to participate now, there's all this talk about risk. I think it's just giving people this impression that overall experiments are kind of objectionable and, and not good for people. Mm-hmm. Well, and as you talked, I couldn't help but think about the COVID-19 vaccine, mm-hmm. right? They're working on a vaccine all around the world. They've got many, uh, you know, vaccines that are being worked on. And yet we hear from people, well, I don't know if I want to take it because, you know, they're rushing to get it. Will it be safe? And so, I, yeah, we're, we kind of 
I guess we, in many ways, and maybe it's, you know, human nature, but we doubt, right? We, we aren't sure how we feel about that sort of stuff. I think uh, this whole process of finding a vaccine makes people uncomfortable from the beginning to the end. They don't, they're uncomfortable with the idea of some people getting the vaccine and some people not getting the vaccine. Like we've seen that already with medications where it's like, oh, yeah. you know, it's like some people aren't getting the medication. Some people are getting the medication. Is that fair? It makes people very uncomfortable. And then it's uncomfortable if it hasn't been tested. So we're kind of put in this place where we really, I think generally people really believe in the scientific process of kind of experimenting, but they just don't like to be a part of it. They don't like the idea of it. They don't like the process of it, kind of talking about how we Mm -hmm. don't know things, putting people potentially at risk, not giving the best treatment right away to people, even though we know that if we experiment, we will find a better solution for more people later on. They don't like the the ethical dilemma, and it makes them uncomfortable. You know, it's interesting when I was doing, um, when I was in school and we were talking about behavioral things, they had this crib and they called it the Skinner box. And this was, wasn't actually there. It was just an idea. But um, it, Skinner was a behaviorist and he created this box to put a baby in. And he would experiment on the baby by, um, you know, giving them different stimuli in this box. And, um, and it was just an interesting to see how people found it so objectionable to put a baby in a box and even though this baby was very well cared for, the temperature was controlled, um, they were given everything that they needed for nourishment, and they were cleaned, and everything you would think of in a crib, but just the idea of it being called a box and being an experiment made people react to it very negatively, even though it actually was hard to figure out how this was actually any different than just a crib or a playpen. Um, and hmm. so it cuts back to this idea that we just don't like this idea of being uh, experimented on as human beings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm interested in this next headline here. Um, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about this. The headline is, The Myth of COVID-19 as the Great Equalizer. Tell me about it. There are so many things in life where it feels like it's just affecting everybody the same, but when you actually take a deeper look at it, it's not. And so COVID-19 is a virus, right? So a virus doesn't see skin color or cultural background or any of these things that, that you know, cause racism or bigotry or, or you know, any kind of discrimination. But then all of a sudden, when you actually look at the statistics around this, it actually is in some ways um, behaving or kind of reacting to systems that are potentially racist or have discrimination in them. So the rates of death are different in different communities. The rates of infection are different in different communities along racial lines. And so it seems that even though the virus is, you know, so-called, you know, colorblind or or is not discriminating, when it enters into a system where people receive different levels of health care or when people have different types of jobs or have different levels of flexibility in their work, all of a sudden you do have um, different people with different amounts of money or different kinds of um, racial backgrounds being affected, you know, quite differently uh, when they are kind of affected by something like COVID-19. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.